Now let us take up the topic of intelligence. We call a person intelligent when they correctly identify the order and connection among things. Adapting them to original purposes is discerning subtle similarities or differences where they are difficult to perceive. For example, we may call an engineer intelligent when they are able to identify the calculable order and connection among materials, physical laws, and mechanical parts that will lead to an engineering success or disaster. Next, let us consider the opinions of the philosophers concerning intelligence. Data corrupted. The agent intellect and the material intellect were necessary postulates for Averroes since, in his view, individual human beings are biologically unequipped in and of themselves to intellectually abstract and store intelligible concepts. Eight centuries after Averroes, French philosopher Henri Bergson argued that However, like Averroes, for Bergson, adaptive intelligence still required a formal metaphysical principle in order for it to be intelligence. In short, on the topic of intelligence, philosophers have long attempted to go beyond mere descriptions of various ways in which intelligence is attributed of a thing. They have gone further in seeking principles of explanation for what intelligence is. That is, they have sought a metaphysical account of intelligence. Modern era psychologists, however, are saddled with no such metaphysical baggage. Leaving behind the philosophers' categories of thought concerning intelligence, psychologists from founder of eugenics, Francis Galton, to founder of psychometrics, Alfred Binet, intelligence for these founding figures is evinced by certain innate and exceptional qualities or abilities. As Galton puts it, intelligence refers to those qualities of intellect or disposition which urge and qualify a man to perform acts that lead to reputation. It is a nature which, left to itself, will, urged by an inherent stimulus, climb the path that leads to eminence and has strength to reach the summit. In sharp contrast to Averroes, the modern psychological understanding of intelligence becomes strictly biological. Or, more precisely, it becomes genetic. Some got it, some don't. Situating herself between the categories of the philosophers and the theoretical assumptions and experiments of the scientists, today's guest has set herself in the heart of the concept of intelligence without systematically critiquing it from either direction. Instead, she has sought to decipher the various metamorphoses the concept of intelligence has undergone throughout history, leading up to present-day neuroscientific, epigenetic, and cybernetic revolutions. The epigenetic turn in the history of intelligence, she writes, is closely linked to the neurobiological revolution of the 1980s. Neuroscience and epigenetics engender in tandem a metamorphosis of intelligence that anchors it neurobiologically in the brain, while at the same time recognizing that the brain is subject to spontaneous modifications that are as much genetic as they are environmental. The brain undergoes synaptic modifications imprinted upon it by experience. Brain development thus continues long after birth and is largely dependent on environmental and cultural input. 
There is therefore an interdependence and an essential relationship between the biological and the social. The physical states of the brain are closely connected to the social postures of the body, the way in which they fit into the space of the community. The brain and the body then constitute the seat of intelligence. However, both body and brain are exposed to the vagaries of history and the social world. It is in the interconnections of what previous thinkers took to be strictly heterogeneous instances, namely between nature and culture, biology and history, genetic and environmental variables, that intelligence develops its distinctive, elastic, adaptive, and mobile dispositions. In this sense, intelligence can be viewed as a system of exchanges, both with an external environment, as well as those involving the internal regulation of psychical states. But owing to our essential exposure to environments beyond our control, there can be no constancy, stability, or permanence other than what is constantly modified. Intelligence, then, is a set of dispositions that are exposed, fragile, open, and contingent in their topological organization, and that do not reflect any predestination or plan. There are no metaphysical principles grounding or explaining intelligence. Intelligence has no being, and cannot, therefore, belong to anyone. It consists only in its transformations. Enter artificial intelligence. What transformation of intelligence now awaits us? Or is it already upon us? What amount of control do we, that is, we the people, have over it? Are we destined to become serfs in a cyber-capitalist dystopia in which all and sundry come under the domination of new, artificially enhanced emperors? This is where philosophers must speak out, today's guest warns. There is no future without a loss of control. Faced with developments in artificial intelligence, the only solution is, in fact, to accept a loss of control, which entails a concerted, voluntary renunciation of the individualistic and competitive form of power that currently rules the cybernetic universe. The issue, therefore, is the democratic construction of collective intelligence, no longer out in search for a metaphysical account of intelligence, but instead situating themselves in the crossroads of collective intelligence between the accelerating discoveries and inventions of the sciences and the ongoing demands of the people philosophers are called upon to convince an ethical intelligence and to speak out in favor of a participatory democracy of intelligence that places each citizen each individual right in the heart of the decision-making process This is Philosophy for the People. I'm your host, Nathan Wiley, here with producer Jessica Cook. Hello. Today we discuss philosophy, artificial intelligence, and the future of thought with one of the world's leading philosophers, professor at the Center for Research in Modern European Philosophy at Kingston University and the University of California at Irvine in Comparative Literature and European Languages and Studies, Dr. Catherine Malibu. Professor Malibu, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Now, Professor, the topic at hand for today's discussion is your latest book, Morphine Intelligence, From IQ Measurement to Artificial Brains, published last year in 2019. In the introduction just now, I, or rather my automated cyber self, attempted to put into play some of the book's themes, including, centrally, that of intelligence. Now, in terms of the history of philosophy, intelligence is, as one might expect, a concept philosophers have concerned themselves with a great deal. I mentioned Averroes of the 12th century, an Aristotelian philosopher, and you mentioned in Morphine Intelligence a number of other philosophers on the topic of intelligence, including Aristotle, Bergson, Heidegger, Kant, Derrida and Deleuze, as well as Nietzsche, and finally, John Dewey, who you cite most favorably on the topic. However, in citing most of these philosophers, you are very much concerned with resisting their reactionary attitudes towards what many philosophers have seen as the infringement on the concept of intelligence by, in particular, the biological and the psychological sciences. But you take a different attitude and approach, namely one of full engagement with both the philosophers on the one hand and the scientists on the other. Could you talk a little bit about some of the tensions between these two camps over the concept of intelligence? Yes, I mean, you're right to say that intelligence is um, a philosophical concept. But at the same time, it is not. I mean, it has become one. But um, Aristotle and, well, the whole tradition until the 19th century uh, you know, all these philosophers never really talked about intelligence. They had other words for it, namely the noose in Greek, or the mind, or spirit in Hegel, for example, or the soul. But intelligence proper is a psychological invention. It becomes a scientific concept uh, in psychology uh, in the middle of the 19th century. And then it became a philosophical concept because people like Bergson and others, uh, well, didn't want to leave it to psychologists. So they started investing it and transforming it into a concept. So intelligence has a very polemical philosophical history. Um, so one of the main tensions um, pertaining to this concept is that when psychologists invented intelligence, they meant something measurable, something like a quantitative and qualitative um, set of properties that could be measured in order to determine if um, someone, a person, was or not able to perform some cognitive operations. And for philosophers, this was a, a scandal. Because if you read Descartes, for example, you know the first words of the Discourse on Method, Descartes says that um, good sense, what he calls le bon sens in French, good sense, is uh, the most well um, partagé, the most well shared uh, wealth among people. So, in, I mean, the capacity to think is universal and should not be measured 
it's immeasurable. So the first tension is about that. Because intelligence would introduce some idea of degrees or grades um, between people. That would be more intelligent people and less intelligent ones. So this is the main tension. Uh, yes, you, you document how the first metric scale of intelligence appeared in 1905. And in 1908, an ancestor of what subsequently became known as the IQ scale was invented. And the most significant term you note, which includes, in a sense, all the others surrounding intelligence as defined by psychology, is generality. Mm-hmm. The first scientific description of intelligence uh, define it as the G factor, which stands for general intelligence or general ability to reason. The problem is that the general intelligence is not universal. It belongs exclusively, you write, to the happy few. Yes. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, when the uh, first uh, intelligence scale were invented by Binet, you know, the French psychologist Binet and Simon, his uh, mm-hmm. colleague, it wasn't, I mean, those scales were not about the G point. It was about uh, children who could not really follow in school. So um, they meant to explain why some children were um, left behind in a certain sense, in mathematics or language, etc. But it wasn't, they were not researching something like a definition of intelligence. They were just trying to measure some reactions to some basic operations. Then it, beca- it became the G point in the reappropriation of those scales by Americans and British. Uh, because the um, metric scales uh, very early became uh, central in the Anglo-Saxon pedagogy and uh, psychology. So it was recuperated in a certain sense Mm -hmm. and transformed into into like an attempt at defining intelligence as general intelligence. But general intelligence, as you said, is not general. In fact, it belongs to very few people. And this, as you mentioned, is a scandal to the philosophers. Absolutely. Uh, Your approach to providing an account of intelligence is to read John Dewey together with Jean Piaget. Only Dewey, the philosopher you write, and Piaget, the psychologist, have brought to light what was originally missing from both philosophy and psychology. To it, a description of intelligence on its own terms. This description is precise and rigorous, you write. Now, given that this is a podcast discussion, I, I will not ask for a precise and rigorous description of the yeah. concept of intelligence in Dewey and Piaget, but perhaps, Professor, you could provide us with something like a sketch of intelligence, uh, maybe beginning first with uh, John Dewey. So for John Dewey, uh, intelligence that he sees very positively is absolutely not something like a gift or a set of, uh, as I said, a set of uh, qualities um, or aptitudes. It's the capacity to solve problems. To be intelligent, if that makes sense, uh, is to be able to solve a problem. What is it to solve a problem? It is not, as as we might think, uh, first of all, to have like a mathematical problem and to... um, isolate oneself and try to find the solution. In fact, a problem 
is something that needs to be translated into a problem. A problem is never a problem by itself. So what is important is not that much the solution than the way to express what is problematic in a problem, if that makes sense. And so for Dewey, the main problems, I mean, the most important problems are always political. So for example, democracy is a problem. So let's express together, because for Dewey, intelligence is always collective. Let's express in school, but also in books, also in different communities, what kinds of problems are hidden in the problem of democracy. So to, to be able to solve a problem is to be able to express, once again, what is problematic in the problem. So for example, for Dewey, it means mainly that our democracy, I mean, the, the US democracy, is not yet democratic enough. And why that? So, you know, this, this is the main problem that Dewey is taking, uh, taking uh, as an example. That's a, a fantastic approach. And I want to, to dig into that more deeply mm -hmm. uh, as the discussion unfolds. But I want to note here that Dewey also contrasts intelligence, or what he calls his method of intelligence, with reason. And I have here a quote from your book, Morphine Intelligence, where you write that for Dewey, unlike reason, understood as immutable reason, intelligence is transition, constant adaptation, and feeling the way from means to ends while moving from past to future. Mm -hmm. Dewey's yes. signature mm -hmm. method of intelligence defines this dynamic by which past experience orients and shapes future experience. So this is, um, uh, well, generally speaking, Dewey belongs to that philosophical trend known as pragmatism. Um, and pragmatism means that you have to do, you have to act right now. And right now is always a middle. To be right now means to be in the middle, in the middle of time. That is somewhere between the past and the future. So it means that if we have to solve a problem right now, because there's a sense of emergency also uh, in Dewey, to, to be able to solve a problem right now means to be able to orient yourself toward the future and to be tensed also toward the past. So to, to, to know how to navigate in the middle and intelligence is closer in that way to instinct than to reason. There's something animal in the intelligence, like touching the ground, like expanding one's own tentacles. Um, it's, it's more like, like that, like a, a kind of uh, animal reasoning mm. rather than a, a kind of rational demonstration, deduction, etc. Mm -hmm. It's a way of feeling what is happening. It's a way of, um, yes, palpating uh, the ground of the problem. And Dewey intelligence is also associated with judgment, the ability to make a judgment. That is with the selection and arrangement of means to affect consequences and with choice of what we take as our ends. Yes, but um, those judgments at the same time, they're not defined in the same way as, for example, the Kantian judgment. It's not, I take a particular case and subsume it uh, under a general law, which is the general definition of judgment. 
to judge in philosophy means that you ha you have a particular case and you relate it to the law. Because for Dewey, the law is never given, and that is precisely the problem. So, in fact, judging for Dewey means more to find a tentative law for the particular case you're dealing with. That's why you have this, this uh, allusion to animal adaptation, to, to find the law in the moment. The law is never pre-given, like in Kant. And also, unlike in Kant, for whom the judgment is a judgment made by the singular individual, for Dewey, it's a matter of, as you mentioned already, collective, collective yes. choices mm -hmm. are our means, our ends, neither purely biological nor purely symbolic, you write, for Dewey, intelligence is fulfilled in collective actions, here, now, and starting at the local level before expanding to the whole of society, as shown in the concept of experimental democracy. Exactly. Um, this is the difference between what we call experts and what Dewey calls the public. He says, um, uh, you know, he has a book like that, The Public and Its Problems. Or is mm -hmm. it the audience? I think it's public in English. Uh, in French, the public et ses problèmes. He, he contrasts two kinds of collectives. Uh, the collective of experts, on the one hand, that is the technocrats that are supposed to deal with social problems like demography, like, um, I don't know, um, social security or whatever, and the collective formed by different audiences or publics at local levels and people who are gathering around one specific problem at the horizontal level. So collective intelligence for Dewey is always horizontal. Yes, and intelligence for Dewey is not deductive. It's deployed in the sphere of action rather than the realm of abstraction, which he says is the, the natural milieu of reason. Mm -hmm. Intelligence, as distinct from the older conception of reason, is inherently involved, as you've, uh, as you've been uh, explaining, in action. So, so much for Dewey. How about um, Jean Piaget, who you, you read with Dewey in providing an account of intelligence? How does Piaget conceive of intelligence? Piaget uh, totally redefined intelligence. I mean, he was, as you know, a psychologist himself, uh, but he totally reshaped the, the concept of intelligence as um, it was first formulated in psychology. So in order to do so, he situated intelligence at the crossing of uh, the, let's say, cognitive and the biological uh, using this notion that is now very um, currently very uh, trendy, which is epigenetic. So he used this term of epigenetic, which means uh, development, the process of a development, in order to show that intelligence is a development, which means that we don't have all our intelligence immediately. It develops through time. And he studied this development. And by intelligence, he didn't mean anything like the point G or uh, a quantitative set of properties, but the capacity to uh, solve 
problems, he also, in a dual movement, what he calls assimilation, humans but also animals assimilate things coming from outside, and to adapt, on the other hand, to restitute what we have assimilated. In that restitution, we shaped also the environment. So it's a double process of being shaped and shaping the environment. Mm. It's mm-hmm. a plastic process that evolves through time. So, so for example, for Piaget, there are ages of intelligence. A child won't be able to do the same thing at, let's say, 4 and 12. So there's a genesis, what he calls an epigenesis, of, for example, mathematics or uh, ma- mathematical skills or uh, linguistic skills or moral judgments. Because the problem of, of Dewey, of uh, Piaget, sorry, is that he agrees with Kant that there are some a priori uh, forms of knowledge. For example, uh, there are things you cannot demonstrate, like the fundamental laws of mathematics, for example, Euclidean uh, geometry or uh, the laws of logic. This, you just have to learn them because as they are, it's impossible to demonstrate. And at the same time, it takes time for us to um, acquire them. So this is this paradox that, according to Piaget, Kant has never solved, which is that, on the one hand, the fundamental laws of knowledge are a priori, and at the same time, we have to learn them. And epigenesis is precisely this process of acquiring something we already have. Yes, you write that it is a process that unfurls continuously intelligence, that is, in mental life and in the life of the organism itself. Yes. Uh, for example, to, to, um, uh, to be able to solve a mathematical problem is not only something mental, it involves the whole organism. It's a way to situate one's own, uh, both spirit and body, in the direction of the problem, and this takes time. And so intelligence then occupies the space between logic and life mm-hmm. that enables exactly. Exactly. the meeting between the development of categories of thought and organic growth. So the study of intelligence is situated then between biological theories of adaptation and theories of knowledge in general. Uh, you write that intelligence is situated precisely between the transcendental and the empirical in an ongoing process of negotiation between them. That is its place, belonging to it alone, its reality. Another way you situate intelligence is between the symbolic and the biological, and yet another way is between technology and nature. So we have the symbolic, transcendental, technological parameter on the one hand and the biological, empirical, natural parameter on the other hand. Now, ultimately, you describe these parameters as two sides of a single energy reality. Could you uh, elaborate on these parameters of intelligence? And uh, why is it only intelligence that occupies this place? First of all, this place is gives you the definition of what a child is. Because... Mm. You know, these uh, psychologists, they are obsessed with this question, what is a child? Which means, why do we have to learn things that are already present in our minds? 
like these a priori laws I was talking about a moment ago, uh, the, the, the child becomes the, the enigma of um, an undeveloped and developing unity of a body and a mind. And in this development, in this unified development, uh, the two dimensions you, you were mentioning, like the transcendental and the empirical, the biological and the cognitive, are at one with each other. And at the, time, at the same time, they conflict with each other. And this is something that philosophers never really took into account. Uh, that, in fact, when I learn something, it is always conflictual because my body will always resist at some point my, my mind, and my mind will always resist at some point my body. Hmm? Hmm. This is what explains fatigue. This is what explains um, the incapacity to solve a problem. Uh, intelligence is a conflict. And I think that Piaget showed that very, very, uh, in a very interesting way. And so you, you raise the question whether it's possible to reconcile intelligence with itself. Can we bring to light the unity of its biological and psychological attributes alongside its intellectual dimension, you ask? And to answer this question, you present what you describe as some of the most striking transformations in the concept of intelligence that have occurred in just over a century. Yeah. <laughs> Specifically, you name three transformations. So what are these three transformations in the concept of intelligence? Now, if we, if we move to the question, how can we um, unify these uh, different dimensions like the transcendental, the empirical, etc. Now we have to move toward the quite recent discoveries about the brain. Now we have to move toward the brain, which very recently definitely uh, became the locus of all research um, about intelligence. So, yes, this is a way to approach the third metamorphosis of intelligence. So the first one, the first concept of intelligence was the one we talked about a moment ago, like mm -hmm. the first discovery, the first uh, bringing to light of the metric scales, etc., the first psychological definitions of intelligence leading mm -hmm. to the point G. The second one was the redefinition of the psychological uh, approach to intelligence by Piaget and Dewey, mm -hmm. roughly speaking. And the third one is the one that is um, at work currently, which is um, the neural approach to intelligence. The brain is precisely the organ that reconciles, in, at least this is my vision of it, uh, reconciles the biological and the symbolic because it is the same organ that is the origin of both organic reactions. I mean, in order to think we have to go through uh, uh, electric, chemi chemical, very uh, biological and uh, physical processes that are purely organic and purely um, ungraspable by the mind. And at the same time, those processes are the basis mm -hmm. uh, of the mental operation. So the brain is definitely a very interesting organ because it deconstructs hmm, in its structure all the oppositions that have been structuring uh, the study of intelligence. Yes, you write that the neuronal, or rather the transcendental, has its origin in the neuronal. So it, it is a very 
provocative statement, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. most of my colleagues in philosophy uh, won't buy that because uh, for uh, for them, as it is the case for Kant, I mean, the transcendental is purely logical. We don't we don't even know where it is. In fact, it's uh, you cannot locate it. It's given a priori in the mind. Where does it come from? Kant never answers this question. So many philosophers would react to this uh, neural approach to the transcendental, saying, oh, you're reducing the transcendentals to something biological. So it's not transcendental. Because transcendental, as the name expresses, means uh, beyond, transcendence. It means to go beyond something. And in that case, it means to go beyond uh, the uh, empirical, that is the... uh, uh, living being, the organic, the material as well, you know. And yet, I think that now we have, you, we really have to deconstruct that kind of opposition uh, because it is clear that the recent research on the brain show that uh, w- when, you, when you look at the brain through technical imagery, uh, you see how the neurons are firing together. There are what they call like... Um, fires in the brain when all of a sudden when someone is for example trying to solve a mathematical problem all the brain is on fire and it's impossible to distinguish in those fires what belongs to the purely uh, let's say mechanical uh, dimension and what it what belongs to the mental it's wonderful and uh, this attitude that philosophers might tend towards uh, that, namely the reaction to um, current discoveries in uh, the biological sciences and uh, neurosciences that you've just been describing, this reaction makes philosophy potentially very ill-equipped to meeting the many challenges that this third metamorphosis of intelligence is presenting us with. True. Uh, The the third metamorphosis. Yes. mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. That's all right. I was going to segue to to another question, but if you have a, a comment to make here, please yes, do. I would like to make a, a short comment, which is that I presented only one type of philosophical reaction to the uh, brain research. But you have the opposite way as well, which is like cognitive philosophy that I disagree with as well, which affirms that affirms on the contrary that everything is cerebral. So in the sense that uh, they are returning to the measurements. We, we, we can measure everything. Like when we do mathematics, we can measure what the brain is doing at that moment, Sarah. And this is not what I want either. Okay, I, I'm trying to, to find a, a way to be at the crossing of the two approaches, like uh, the critique of reductionism and reductionism itself. Yes, this is what I think makes uh, makes the book so compelling is that you you set yourself up in the heart of the concept of intelligence without critiquing it decisively anyway from either direction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But this uh, third metamorphosis of intelligence is, as you mentioned, the one we are currently transitioning into. It's the metamorphosis brought about by advances in cybernetics, biotechnologies, mm-hmm. robotic engineering, and of course, artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. We are accustomed to hearing more in the media about the coming wave of job automation than perhaps anything else. 
But the automation of jobs, you point out, is only sort of the tip of the iceberg. The intensified automatism of intelligence is perhaps the real beating heart of the third metamorphosis. But rather than sounding an alarm over the imminent domination of humankind by autonomous machines, Mm -hmm. you quite coolly show how the automatism of intelligence is, in fact, nothing new. And so it isn't something we should be fear-mongering about, but rather intelligently preparing for, in part by better understanding the inherent automatism of intelligence. What are some of the ways in which you understand the automatism of intelligence? Uh, You draw here again from from Dewey. Yes. Well, if we want to define it, I I know it's very difficult to define uh, intelligence, but if, if we try, what will we find? When we talk about solving problems, uh, when we talk about method, when we talk about this intermediary point between the biological and the symbolic, what do we find? We find a series of automatisms. If we didn't construct those automatisms, we wouldn't be able to survive. So, for example, there are so many things we know by heart. Uh, How is it possible? Even my own language, I know it by heart. I mean, it's a series of automatisms when I speak. I never look for my words, except in, of course, sophisticated situation. But at the everyday level, uh, I just use my language because it is automatically uh, ingrained in me. And even Bergson recognizes that a poem, for example, has to be learned by heart. It is impossible to access poetry without learning poetry by heart, which means transforming it into an automatism, same thing with multiplication tables and so many other things. I mean, habit is one of the most important uh, concepts in intelligence studies. Without a series of routines, we wouldn't be able to survive. So yes, intelligence is at its core, a series of automatism. It's nothing else than that. And this is paradoxically, those automatisms that allow for creation, it is because we, are, we have a series of stereotypes in our minds, in our bodies, etc. It is because we are, um, in a certain sense, determined by habit that at the same time we're able to improvise, to find new ways of doing, of thinking, etc. This is a very interesting relationship, the relationship between routine and improvisation. But you cannot have one without the other. So that's why, in my eyes, I mean, the problem brought up by artificial intelligence is not automatism, because automatism is a very old question. Right. Yes. The real boogeyman isn't the machines. Mm -hmm. It's uh, rather the humans who are transferring what you describe as their own hegemonic impulses to robots, neural networks, and synaptic computers. You cite the usual suspects, Google, Apple, Mm -hmm. Facebook, and Amazon. These actors, you suggest, are anything but prepared to meet the challenge of the third metamorphosis, which requires that we learn to let go of our drive for conquest, domination, and imperialism, since it is this drive that instrumentalizes AI to socially nefarious ends. The issue, therefore, you conclude is the democratic construction of collective intelligence, an important aspect of which is developing our ability to look from many sides 
simultaneously. You make this point in the context of presenting Dewey's theory of automatism. The natural automatism of intelligence reveals its collective, that is, social nature. For Dewey, you continue, taking a plurality of perspectives into account when examining problems, along with identifying the greatest wealth of possibilities in a given situation, is democracy par excellence. The growth and power of collective intelligence are conditions for experimental democracy. Could you elaborate on this fascinating constellation of concepts, namely automatism, collective intelligence, and democracy? How do you understand these concepts as belonging together? Um, I think that what, what is currently going on uh, with AI is that we have to understand that the only way to deal with a machine is to uh, treat it as a social being. Uh, and this is one of the most um, urgent challenge brought about by, by AI, is that today, I mean, uh, machines or, uh, well, robots are, are really becoming human-like. Uh, they are excellent simulators. And so the only way to deal with them is not to consider them as just uh, dangerous automatisms or um, weapons or whatever, but to consider them social beings. So the only way to deal with artificial intelligence is to deal with it socially and politically. So uh, when you were mentioning those people, like, uh, um, I don't remember the name you gave them, but uh, like the people from the GAFA or people like Elon Musk, these yes. people are agitating uh, the fear, I mean, they're trying to scare us because they are the ones who paradoxically uh, predict that one day machines will replace us, etc. And at the same time, at the very same time, there are inventors and users of those machines. So we have to deconstruct uh, these fears because they are pure creations of people who, as you say, said, want to have hegemonies on them. The only way to, I think, to, to resist uh, those fictions is to integrate the machines into the collective intelligence. We're not, we don't have to fight them, uh, to treat them as if they were totally or absolute others, but on the contrary, to treat them as other members of this collective intelligence. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Um, what roles should philosophy be stepping into in helping to organize such a participatory democracy of intelligence? Well, uh, I don't know if this is the specific task of philosophy. We, we can go back to this in a moment. But you know what's going on at, currently with the virus crisis is that we are experiencing, so it's not maybe artificial intelligence, it's more like cybernetics, but we are experiencing uh, the uh, mm, growth of a new form of collective intelligence through the cyberspace since the beginning of the crisis. And what, what we're doing right now, you and I, is to construct this new form of collective. Like, we don't see each other, we don't know where we are, 
we, we're not physically interacting, and at the same time, we have we're having a very intense dialogue. So I think that this gives us an idea of how we can build that collective intelligence with machines and not against them. So philosophy, what? So I have my own, of course, approach to it. You know, I was formed by Hegel. Um, and I'm very much into dialectic. So dialectics is the logic of contradiction, which means that you have to look on both sides of a problem before trying to solve it, which is you have to contradict, to see all the contradiction pertaining to a problem. And so I think that what philosophy can bring to this new uh, form of collective intelligence is to see it dialectically. To, to see it on the one hand as something like a loss, because there is something like a loss in cybernetics, because once again, we are losing touch of each other, uh, physically speaking, and we can fear that progressively those cybernetic exchanges uh, become the norm. But at the same time, we have to see what in this loss is a gain. This is my approach. And what philosophy can bring is a kind of uh, ethics, a dialectical ethics mm -hmm. of before judging, try to look both ways. Try to, as Hegel says, speculate. That is to construct a kind of mirror that helps you um, perceiving different sides of the same problem. And one way of doing that, uh, being able to prior to judging see things from all sides mm -hmm. is to form alliances and mm -hmm. you speak of an unprecedented alliance among biology philosophy and cybernetics but this is not the first alliance uh, professor that you have spearheaded your work has also been at the forefront of an unprecedented alliance among philosophy psychoanalysis and neuroscience so in this regard your work is exemplary for what I believe philosophy increasingly needs to be doing, namely forming alliances. Yeah, that's beautiful. And thank you. But unfortunately, this is not always well received because people say, okay, uh, Malibu has uh, several works between several disciplines, which means that she is not a specialist. You see, this is the critique I very often receive. Like when you work at the crossing of different fields, you're not an expert in any of them, uh, which means that you're not serious. <laughs> you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. This is also something that would be very interesting to uh, study, uh, like the fear of the interdisciplinary. Um, everybody, mm -hmm. as you said, knows that it is uh, indispensable. And at the same time, it is not well received. Uh, it, it would be interesting to... Uh, uh, to know why. But yes, I, I was going to ask you, are there perhaps old habits that philosophers need to shed in order to be better able to form alliances uh, in other sectors of research and uh, with other sectors of society? But everything, you know, everyone and everything is so competitive, you know. Uh, no one wants to really share. That's the problem. That's the problem. But uh, yes, I think we, we have to shed our old habits, absolutely, absolutely. Form new automatisms, definitely. 
Uh, to continue with Dewey, uh, if we agree with him that the primary role of intelligence is to solve problems and that mm -hmm. all problems are practical, as you, or you said political, mm -hmm. then perhaps we can derive from his theory of intelligence a set of guidelines for cultivating a form of practical intelligence that is up to the challenge of exploring possible solutions to the many crises, crises we are facing today. Uh, I'm thinking here of one of your references to Dewey's book, How We Think, mm -hmm. where he enumerates five logical steps to any problem-solving inquiry. One, sensing the problem. Two, locating and defining it. Three, suggesting a possible solution. Four, developing this suggestion through reasoning. And five, further observation and experimentation of the initial given. So, are these are are there ways in which we could be doing a better job of training intelligence specifically for the kinds of real world problems that we desperately need to begin solving? I mean, for Dewey, um, this uh, these steps are not. I mean, you have to learn how to develop them. It means that he, as you know, he redefines education in school. This is where we should start. Mm -hmm. I think the first challenge is pedagogical. Those um, techniques of solving problems, uh, techniques of problem solving, should be um, learned in school. I'm, I, I wonder if our education systems today are really uh, adapted to what is going on. Dewey also talks about intelligently discriminating according to a criterion of relevancy versus irrelevancy. But it is my view that given the preponderance of crises we are facing today, a sensible criterion of relevancy when it comes to the intellectual efforts of philosophers should be the extent to which those efforts are addressed to some concrete social problem. So in this regard, again, morphine intelligence, I think, is truly exemplary. What will it take to move philosophy out of its entrenched academic modes of philosophizing mm -hmm. and more into something like Dewey's practical exploratory mode of philosophizing? I think it, it once again, uh, to go back to education, I think it is the way in which philosophy is taught is absolutely vital. The way in which I try to teach myself uh, to do my seminars or classes, etc., is always experimental. Of course, I have to teach uh, an author. For example, this year, I, in the spring, uh, my class was on the first critique. But that was a first moment of lecturing, of course. For one hour, I was lecturing about the first critique. And then the rest of the session, which was like two hours, I was making experiences with my students. So mm. I invented a series of exercises that uh, appropriate the text like a raw material and shape it and uh, confront with it and play with it so that the lecture was, um, yes, experimented. Mm? Uh, I was inspired by Michel Foucault, who says in uh, What is Enlightenment, that the only way to deal with the transcendental is to experiment it, which I think mm -hmm. is beautiful. And this I'm trying to do in my classes, 
which is that philosophy should never be something like a dogma or something like a, a truth you know, that the mm-hmm. teacher, yeah, yes, would infuse to the students, but um, always a raw material. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, yes. Yeah. And so that, that's why I'm so fascinated by plasticity, because this is how I conceive um, my role as a teacher, right? to, to, give, to give something to sculpt, to, to give something to, to uh, fashion to my students. That sounds like a wonderful class to be a part of. I'm, I'm also privileged to be able to be a part of uh, Marquette University graduate courses mm-hmm. uh, with many of the professors I've had are incredible uh, teachers and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. they challenge and they, um, they force you to grapple with the material in, in ways that help you to internalize it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. And, you know, uh, officially, I mean, we have in France, we have official philosophers, you know, like mediatic philosophers. They always uh, speak on TV or on the radio, you see. So mm-hmm. these philosophers are, are presented to the general audience as the true philosophers. But in fact, they're, they're just commodified philosophers. So a wrong, a wrong image of philosophy is given to the public. Uh, like uh, asking like basic questions like what is happiness what is what is it to uh, be successful what is love what you know stupid questions like that i mean without any kind of mediation and they are bringing immediate answers hmm, with false mm-hmm. brilliance you know so this image that should be deconstructed that should be destroyed but this is this is very very difficult because um, then we, we, we find again the, the, the power of the medias, etc. But I think that genuine philosophy, authentic uh, philosophy, is never really explained to the people. They have a false image of it. Yeah, it sounds like the classical distinction between philosophy and sophistry. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, exactly, exactly. I, I think maybe part of the problem is that um, you... You mentioned this false brilliance and having all the answers, but philosophy at its core is about ignorance and confusion and feeling your way through, right? Uh, right. Of course. Of course. Now, I titled this episode, Philosophy, AI, and the Future of Thought. Is there a distinction to be made between philosophical thought and philosophical intelligence? No. If you want my last word, no. Um, usually, of course, there is a difference. Uh, as I said, philosophers resist this notion of intelligence. So, for example, if you take um, Heidegger's book, uh, What is Thinking? It's about thought. And definitely, Heidegger would never, never uh, accept to um, uh, translate thoughts as intelligence. Um, but... After everything we said, I can conclude that, yes, of course, it's one and the same. Philosophical intelligence is, um, of course, um, this is the definition of, of thinking, of course, like problem solving. And so I, don't, I, I personally don't see any difference. So I wonder, uh, Professor, what you think, what is the future of philosophical thought, if not <laughs> the cultivation of a more plastic and mobile philosophical intelligence? Well, this is a huge question. What can I say? 
uh, I think you defined it very rightly when you said that it was the making of alliances. Uh, this is exactly what I think. It, it's um, building new connections between disciplines, uh, particularly sciences today. Um, for a long time, philosophy and sciences, at least in, the, in Europe, have been fighting, have been in conflict. We had more alliances between philosophy and literature, for example, or philosophy and poetry, at least once again in Europe. Uh, so now we have to build new alliances between uh, philosophy and sciences, philosophy and cybernetics, philosophy and psychology. So I think this is the future of philosophy. Well, Definitely. the alliance that I am presently concerned with is that between philosophy and the people. <laughs> and I thank you, Professor, for joining me in uh, trying to help forge such an alliance. Uh, you have been very generous with your time. And I was again, very, it was, um, I want to thank you for the um, intelligence of your reading. I mean, I was really um, touched by it. Well, I will just uh, say to any listeners out there that all of your books are well worth careful study and please they should go out and, and read Morphine Intelligence from IQ Measurement to Artificial Brains. Professor, thank you again very much. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Jessica. Solid work. Solid work. Uh, solid work. Hey, solid, solid work. work. This has been a solid work production.